Starting in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I heard a pastor say one time that studying parables is like swimming in the ocean. It seems like really fun at first. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, like the further out you get, the more like panicky you feel. Because it starts to sink in a little bit of how far off you really are. You ever had that experience, by the way, where you're the ocean you know, kind of splashing around the shore with some friends, say at a, like an RUF summer conference, shameless plug for next summer, first week of May, put it on your calendar. Something like that maybe where you're like playing in the ocean with your friends and kind of like now you're throwing the frisbee and you're kind of jumping over the waves, doing the thing and waves are hitting you in the face and, and you do this for like 30 minutes or a couple hours and you are all of a sudden way out, like way further out. You went past the first sandbar. You're like nearly to Cuba and you're back there. (laughs) And all of a sudden it just, it like, it hits you. I am so far from the shore right now. You kind of have that. Have y'all had that? Just me? Okay. You've had that experience and you're thinking about the sharks and you're thinking about all those documentaries you've seen and how like people's lives have been affected by moments like these and you panic. Okay, that really is the picture of what it's like to study parables. Because it's kind of fun at first. You're giggling, throwing the frisbee around, and like, look at that guy. That's kind of fun. And then it just gets real. Like, then it gets real because Jesus takes this to such a deep level, and you realize how far out you really are and how far from home you are. And I hope that this parable hits us like that. I hope that this is one that all of a sudden we look up when we realize how far past the sandbar we are. Because Jesus kind of doesn't hold back in this one. This is a parable. It's very simple, very short. It's built on two contrasts. You've got two different men with two approaches, but two very different outcomes. So we're just going to walk through this. The two men in Jesus's parable really represent two entire groups of people. It's very important. So in this corner, the first corner is this Pharisee. The Pharisees weren't all bad. In fact, they were actually considered very good. You know, Pharisees have a bad rap for us. We kind of point fingers at them. But Pharisees were good. Like, that's kind of what they were. They were very good. They would have been good Jewish men. You ever heard that, like, ironic phrase where somebody's like, he's a good Christian man. That's ironic. No such thing. But that's what Pharisees were. They were good Jewish men. They were good according to the law. They followed the laws. Whatever the law said to do, they would do. They would tithe. They would uh, give appropriate... um, Mercy funds, they would uh, 
fast on appropriate days. They would make appropriate sacrifices. Anything else God required, they would do that. But the thing is, for many of them, their own self-goodness was the thing that would keep them away from God rather than bring them to Him. And, and here's what I mean. The same is true for us. Your self-justifying obedience could actually be the thing that th- keeps you at a distance from God rather than near Him. It keeps you at a distance from other people too. When all the emphasis of your life becomes what you've accomplished for yourself or how you should be rewarded for how good you've been, then you, you've missed. You've missed it. Listen to the emphasis as it comes through in the Pharisees' prayer. Particularly the subject of every sentence. I want you to see a, a word that's repeated a lot in these couple of sentences. When he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What's the emphasis? It's I, right? Over and over and over. It's I. Three characteristics of this prayer. It's probably pretty obvious to you, but the first is it is self-exalting. Notice the posture of his prayer. The Pharisee was standing by himself. He's praying loud enough for everyone to hear him. Scholars say that this is not just a time of personal prayer at the temple, but really this is like a temple service. So there would have been a ton of people around. And if that's true, the Pharisee would be entering into this crowded place and finding a spot to stand away from everyone else because he wouldn't want to be touched by anyone who was unclean. And he would find this place and then he would begin his prayer very loud and for anyone to hear him and see him. And the emphasis of his prayer is, I thank you, God, for how awesome I am. Like that's really it, right? He's thanking God for how great he personally is. This is not worshiping God. This is not thanking God for what he's done. This is thanking God for what he personally has accomplished. It's self-exalting. It is self-worship, but hidden in prayer form, which is a very disturbing form of self-worship. Notice the content of his prayer. So he's self-exalting, but he's also self-justifying We said earlier that the Pharisees were good people. They followed the laws. They were outwardly obedient to the Old Testament laws. But the list that the Pharisee gives here actually doesn't just show that he's obedient to the laws, but instead he is justifying his own existence with an over-obedience to the laws. Let me work this out. You hear how he names fasting and tithing? Okay, so fasting. Uh, Fasting was a good thing to do. It was commanded by God to do. On one day of the year, one specific day of the year, the day of the atonement, day of atonement. And that's when they were called to fast Israel. But what is he saying? He's saying, I fast twice a week. Look at me. Like I'm doing even more than you ask, God. Look how much I've got my act together. And then tithing, tithing, good thing to do. Good thing to do back then. Good thing to do now. But you would tithe on your work. You would tithe on your income or on your produce from like your farm or whatever. What is he tithing on? He says, um, I give tithes on all that I get. In other words, that would include goods or produce that he would receive from other Jews, which had already been tithed on. He's making a point that he's doing more than the law requires. Look at me, God. Look at me. Simply what he's saying. Now, we could be very guilty of doing the same kind of thing. Perhaps doing more than God requires 
and reminding him and everyone else around us of how good we are. Perhaps elevating certain traditions of your upbringing more than Scripture itself. Let me give you some possible examples. If you're a real Christian, then the best way to do high school is fill in the blank. You know, it's, it's the upbringing. It's a certain way that you were raised or an experience that you have that, that now is elevated to like, but that's what real Christians do. When I raise my kids, they're going to fill in the blank when it comes to school. That's a big one, I've noticed. Or if you're a Christian, then the right way to celebrate X holiday, particular holiday, is doing this thing. Where does that come from? Usually from some tradition, maybe some family background, but maybe not from Scripture itself, right? Or... The only truly godly way to spend your Sundays is fill in the blank. Or if you're a real Christian, then the clothes you should be wearing should cover at least, and you make some regulations. Now, all of these things, none of these things are bad on their own standing. But the point is, is it possible that we elevate our own traditions? Kind of our own sense of moral goodness to be above Scripture itself. And then we kind of keep everyone else at a distance and say, look at me, look at me. Look how much I'm doing, even more than God requires. And we could be coming to God on those, own, those same terms too. We can justify ourselves based on our own sense of moral goodness. And you see how that kind of self-exalting or self-justifying existence will then lead to the third characteristic, which is a condescending attitude. You hear it all through this guy's smug prayer, the way he's pointing out the people around him. The Pharisee literally prays what so many of us think too often. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. I thank you so much that I don't struggle with that thing she struggles with. He even named some categories, extortioners, which is like thieves or robbers, the unjust or cheaters, adulterers. What's ironic is that he actually is all of these things. He's all of these things. He's thanking God that he's not like these people, but he is these people. He may not consider himself an external extortioner, but he is a spiritual thief of God's glory, heaping it on himself. He may not be considered unjust in his own eyes, but he's certainly cheating himself out of a deeper relationship with God. And maybe he hasn't committed adultery in the physical sense, sleeping with someone who's not his wife. But even in the Old Testament testifies that anyone who trusts in anyone other than God for salvation are, and here's a great Old Testament phrase, whoring themselves out to other lovers. That's biblical. And so he's all of these things, but he's pointing fingers and then he narrows in on this one guy. This one guy that he sees, that he's really thankful that he's not like this guy, this tax collector, this pathetic little cheater. And so in summary on the first guy, the man who thought that he was good with God because of his own goodness is only good in his own eyes. He's arrogant, he's condescending, and he's distant from God altogether, which is hard because now we're kind of in deep waters. And I'm sure that you're asking already some hard questions, maybe about your own habits or even your own prayer life. Like, what is my approach to prayer? Am I praying just when people are noticing? When people are listening? Am I mostly reminding God of how good I've been? What I've accomplished for Him? 
Or that I've done even more than he's asked? Am I comparing myself to other people and really just praising myself? That's one approach. But there's another approach. There's another guy on the other side of the temple grounds. There's this tax collector. And you may know this tax collectors in that day were were hated. They were despised by everyone. Uh, By the religious people and the non-religious people. No one liked tax collectors. They were all bad people and everybody knew it. Um, They were despised mostly because they were kind of considered traitors. They worked for the man and they would collect money for the government, but then they would collect more than they were supposed to collect, and then they would tuck away the extra as a commission. It would be kind of like if Emily, who's representing us tonight selling these t-shirts, if Emily was like, we knew the t-shirts were $10, but she's like, but for you, they're 12 And she tucked away two from each sale. Emily, are you? Are these really $7 t-shirts, Emily? Okay. So she's tucking away. That's the idea. And so like, people could not stand the tax collectors. They felt cheated by them all the time. So the fact that Jesus flips the script here and he has the tax collector going to the temple to pray at all would have been enough of a surprise. Do you hear that? Like the fact that Jesus has this tax collector going to church, gasp, this guy, he showed up. But that's not even Jesus's full point. That's just the sandbar. Listen to the content of his prayer. Really, it's the antithesis of the first prayer, right? It's quieter. It's much shorter. The emphasis is not on what he's accomplished, but rather what he's asking God to accomplish for him. Verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where the Pharisee's prayer is self-exalting, self-justifying, the heart of this very short prayer of the tax collector is God-exalting, and self-condemning. Seven words in English is six in Greek. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And actually, a sinner doesn't really do enough. Most translations put it that way. But the original text has this like definite article in front of the word sinner. So what is he saying? He's saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He sees himself as the sinner. Similar like Paul's language. It's the chief sinner. That's his view of himself. He sees God for who he is, the only one capable of extending mercy. And he sees himself for who he really is, the sinner. And so that's why he stands off, far off, ashamed to be near anyone. And that's why he beats his chest. Now, that's an interesting phrase, kind of make you uncomfortable as you picture this. This isn't Tarzan. This isn't like a D lineman after he sacks the quarterback and he gets up and doing whatever, like, this guy is in sorrow. He is hurting. He's destitute. This is like the out of the depths I cry to you kind of disposition. Have you ever been there? Where you come to that point where you say, God, I know what's in here. I've seen it. I've seen the way I've hurt people. Like I've seen the way I continue to struggle in that way. And I, God, be merciful to me. I don't want this anymore. That's what he's saying. He's, he's so deeply seeing himself for who he really is. And he's saying, please God, please God, please God, be merciful to me. The sinner. It's a humble prayer. 
a recognition of who He is and a recognition of who God is. And it leads to a very different outcome. So verse 14 is shocking. Verse 14 is shocking because think about what Jesus is saying here. When he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified before God rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, let me just say this. Um, I don't think this is a parable about prayer. That may sound controversial, but I don't think this is a parable about prayer. I don't think Jesus is giving us an outline of how to pray. He does that, and that's in the Lord's Prayer. But this one's not about prayer. He's not telling you how to hold your hands, or how loud you should pray, or how quiet you should pray, or where you should stand, or if you should kneel. That's not the point of this prayer. Those things are illustrating something much deeper. This is a story about an approach to God, not in prayer, but in salvation. James Montgomery Boyce was a pastor, and I I really like his emphasis on this. He said that this is not a parable on how to approach prayer, but it's a parable on how to approach salvation. And we see that because of the outcome. Two men went up to the temple, and they went to this worship service at the temple. And only one goes home justified before God. They were both there, they were both present, but only one goes home justified before God. Now, what is justify? We've got to work this out. Justification. You know, this is a word that either gets you very excited or makes you roll your eyes. It's kind of one of these words, if you've been around church circles, it's just such a churchy word. It's like you, you get, you know, 68 points in Bible Scrabble. That's not a real game, and it should never be a real game. I hope it's not a real game. But justification would certainly earn you high points in Bible Scrabble. So what is it? Let me just kind of work on a definition level and then we'll hopefully work it out and illustrate it. So justification is a legal term. It's not just a theological idea. Justification is a term that means you're someone being made right. Someone being declared innocent. Someone being set free, not guilty. That's the idea of justification. And typically, it also has in mind this idea that someone is set free, declared not guilty, when they really were guilty. My friend Jonathan, who's also a campus minister, he tells this story from his own life. When he was a, a sophomore at Ole Miss, and he was partying one night, late into the night, into the early morning, until 7 a.m. when he was driving back to his dorm on campus. And he was a sophomore... He was drunk, and the lights came on behind him. So the policeman pulls him over. He smells alcohol coming out of the car. He has him take a breathalyzer test and all that kind of stuff, and he fails. He fails. And so they set the date for him to go to court to face the judge, and he's scared out of his mind. He's scared. I mean, he knows he's guilty. He knows what he could be facing and how this could change his life. The reality of what he's done is set in. And he goes before this judge in Mississippi who says, how do you plead? And he says, I plead guilty. And he says, okay, uh, not guilty. I declare you not guilty. And Jonathan was like, "Um, I really am guilty. And they literally had this conversation. He was like, 
I mean, I did it. All this is right. And he said, yeah, but I think this is someone else's fault. And I want you to help me figure out whose fault it was. He wanted him to rat him out, basically. Like, tell people, tell the judge who his friends were who gave him this alcohol or whatever. But the point is, he walked away with nothing on his record. Not guilty. Now, some would look at that and say, like, that's a mockery of justice. But Jonathan would look at that and say he was justified because a judge declared him not guilty. When he knew he was guilty, the judge declared him not guilty. It's the judge being kind. And so what does justification look like for a believer? It's not just being declared not guilty because he's full of grace. It's because your guilt has gone to someone else. Something has to pay for God to be a righteous judge. It's either you or a substitute. And that's the whole idea of the temple system, right? There was a priest who went in to the temple to make a sacrifice for God's people. So they would make different types of sacrifices. But on the Day of Atonement, it was this lamb who a spotless lamb would be sacrificed. And the blood of that lamb would count for the sins of God's people and they would be forgiven. And it was a temporary idea to offer forgiveness for God's people. And so how is anyone made right with God? We naturally think that it's by being better than the next person. Like being a better person, being a more moral person. And so if you treat people with respect or you don't cheat or lie or you dress modestly or you don't use curse words or you live rightly before God and other people or whatever, then, then perhaps... Your outward righteousness would count you to be justified before God. But that's not justification. That's not how it works. Because here's where we're in deep waters. Because Jesus says that doesn't work in this passage. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that that kind of mode of operating doesn't work. It's not about outward moral appearance or how well you've been doing in this particular struggle area or whatever, or how many service projects you've been on, or mission trips, or your quiet times, or whatever. Because Jesus says, the one who was good left unjustified. And the one who was bad went home justified. So how does this work? This is not a parable about prayer. It's a parable about salvation. And the content of each of their prayers confirms something about their salvation. So the one who lived rightly, the Pharisee, how did he approach salvation? He approached salvation by saying, God, I thank you that I'm doing very good. And that I'm not like these other losers. And that I basically don't need much forgiveness from you today. Thank you. And so he went home justified in his own mind, but not justified before God. He isn't justified because he doesn't need to be justified in his own mind. So let me ask you a hard question. How do you seek to be justified before God? Like, how do you come before God at all for a relationship with him? What is it based on? Is it based on your own record? Your own moral goodness. How kind you've been to people. How giving or how sacrificial you are. How devoted you are spiritually. 
or how hard you've been fighting against these particular sins, or you're super involved with campus ministry, or you're very connected to your church, is that how you approach God and say, see, we're good, right? Will it work? We know the answer is no, but let me show you why it's no. I want to illustrate it with uh, a really disturbing story. So I'm just going to give you that on the front end. Um, Back in the 1970s, there was a man in Chicago named John Wayne Gacy Jr. Some of you studied about this guy. He's honestly one of the most evil people I've ever heard of in my life. He was a serial killer who repeatedly seduced young men or boys. And he would abuse them and he would kill them. And once he was caught, he was convicted of at least 33 murders along with numerous other crimes that you can imagine. And he was eventually executed in 1994. And one of the most disturbing details about Gacy's murders is that after, um, after he killed these young men, he would often stuff their bodies underneath the floorboards of his home. Literally underneath the flooring of his home. And when he was arrested, police found 26 bodies in the crawl space. Horrible story, right? Um, Several years ago, one of my favorite musicians named Suvion Stevens wrote a song about John Wayne Gacy Jr. And he literally, like, it's a disturbing song. It's a beautiful song in terms of melody and sound. But when you listen to the words, he's literally describing some of these things that I just told you and even in some more graphic detail. But he has a very powerful message in this song. Suvion happens to be a Christian. And I think for him, he understands that he has a similarity with John Wayne Gacy Jr. He has something in common with him. A serial killer who did all these horrible things. Suvion says he has something in common with him. There's a confession at the end of the song. And he really speaks to our hearts, all of our hearts. The tax collector, the Pharisee, John Wayne Gacy, me and you. Here's what he says at the end. He says, And in my best behavior... I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I've hid. And the song just ends. I don't know what that does for you, but um, man, I can resonate with that. Like I know stuff about my life that nobody else knows. You know, I know the struggles I know where I've been. I know who I've hurt. Look beneath the floorboards of my heart. It's not good. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what stories you have to tell. I don't know what you relate to in this. But if you're coming to approach God based on how good you've been, you can't go home justified. If you wait until the time that you get your act together and stop struggling with all these different things, you will not go home justified. I want you to see something. I want you to see that there's a sacrifice being made for you. The Pharisee sought to justify himself because he didn't and he didn't need saving. But the tax collector was dependent on God to do it for him. 
He desperately needed saving. You know how we, when we look at these parables week in and week out, I often ask the question, where is Jesus in the middle of this story? This one's a little trickier. He's not the Pharisee. And he's not the tax collector. You know where he is? He's the sacrifice that the sinner is counting on in order for him to receive mercy. The mercy that the tax collector is counting on is that someone else would take care of his sins. The temple, the priest, the sacrifice. The reason that we don't need these things anymore is because Jesus is the final high priest who goes into the temple even in his own body and makes a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice to atone for all of the sins of all of God's people. And the mercy that this sinner is counting on is the mercy of the cross of Christ. So that anyone who would come to God on the basis of His sacrifice would go home justified. Because justification is an act of God's grace whereby we are pardoned of our sins and accepted in God's sight as righteous. Why? Because Jesus is righteous for us. That's justification. You, if you're trusting in Christ, are justified because of His perfect life and not because of yours. So let me encourage you to see yourself in this passage as the sinner and not as the one who has his act together. Because the sinner is the one who needs saving. But to see that the basis of your forgiveness has been provided in Christ alone and to trust in His goodness and not your own. This leads us to a changed life. It leads us to do things differently because of what Christ has done for us. It leads us to fight sins differently, to love people differently, to care about those around us differently. But the foundation is that we're trusting what Jesus has done, not what we have done. Let me illustrate this in one final way and we'll close. Because there are two approaches to God, right? There's two approaches to God in this passage. One is really an approach of self-salvation. And the other is an approach of self-denial or salvation from the outside in. You know, last weekend we celebrated veterans. Um, It was Veterans Day. And I I came across this story not too long ago about one veteran who's going around the country still telling the story. This guy is 93 years old. And he's going around the country telling this story from World War War II. This guy's name is Edgar Harrell. And he was one of the young Marines on board of a ship that went down as it was traveling through the South Pacific. And the date was July 30th, 1945. So this is World War II. He's written a book, by the way. It's called Out of the Depths, which is great, based on Psalm 130. And he tells this story when the USS Indianapolis was carrying 1,200 men traveling through the South Pacific after they had basically just delivered part of like the cargo that would go along with the atomic bomb that would eventually end the war. And they had completed their mission and they're traveling back and a Japanese torpedo hit the ship. 1,200 men on board and it sunk within 12 seconds. Um, 300 men died immediately. 
And there were 900 survivors splashing around in the ocean, hoping to live. And he was one of these men. And he tells the stories of what happened over the next five days. They spent the next few days on very few lifeboats with whatever scraps they had to float on. Very little food or water. They were surviving hypothermia. They were surviving literal shark attacks in the water. And maybe worst of all, dehydration. And one of the stories that he tells is what would happen when these men would begin to drink the salt water. They would just give up. They, they were so thirsty. Their body just needed some kind of something to quench their thirst. And so they would dive into the salt water. They would try to filter it through their clothes or whatever, and they would drink the salt water. And he said when men started drinking the salt water, within an hour they would have hallucinations. And they would just go nuts. And there were all these different types of stories of what they would do. There was one story of one man stabbing another man because he thought that there was water in his clothes that he could drink. There were these hallucinations, but then they started hallucinating that they were, you know, enemies on their lifeboats. And they would start attacking one another and literally killing one another out in the ocean. And over the course of those five days, it went from 900 to 800 700 to 600 to 5 to 4 to 3. In the end, there were 317 survivors who were rescued. And they were rescued because a patrol boat came. It was just on a routine patrol and found them called the Navy. And they came and rescued the 317 men. And when he tells this story, he talks about the men, the men fighting for their lives had two options, two approaches. Either to drink the salt water because it was there, it was available, seemed like a good answer. Or wait to be rescued. Those were the only two options. And I do think there are some similarities, right? As we're out splashing in the ocean, lost, maybe not even knowing it. There's a couple of options. To continue in the ways that we've worked so far. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. I'm doing pretty good. Continue to drink the poison. Or to see how you've been rescued. By God who's entered into the world. Who lived the life that we never could have lived. And he died the death that we all deserve to die. In his body on the tree. The final sacrifice for all of God's people. To see that a rescuer has come. And to put your hope in what he's accomplished for you. It changes everything. It changes everything. Would you pray with me? God, I do pray that you would help us to look up and see.